I'm Mark McNeely, Managing Editor of No-Till Farmer, and welcome to the latest edition of our 2018 No-Till Farmer podcast series. Our program features Neil Kinsey, a fertility expert and agronomist from Charleston, Missouri, and also the author of the book, Hands-On Agronomy. This presentation, titled Finding and Fixing Nutrient Imbalances in No-Tilled Crops, is brought to you by Yetter Manufacturing Company. I encourage you to subscribe to this series currently available in iTunes, the Google Play Store, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, and TuneIn Radio. Subscribing will allow you to receive an alert about upcoming episodes when they're released. If you have another app you use for listening to podcasts, please let us know and we'll make an effort to get it listed there as well. I'd like to take a moment to thank Yetter Manufacturing Company for sponsoring today's episode. With a tradition of providing farmers solutions since 1930, Yetter Manufacturing Company is your answer for tools and equipment to face today's production agriculture demands. From many different designs of planter attachments for the different planting conditions you face to several options of equipment for placing fertilizer and products to meet harvest time challenges, Yetter Manufacturing delivers the return on investment and the tools to meet your equipment needs and maximize inputs. Find solutions to your challenges today at yetterco.com. That's Y-E-T-T-E-R-C-O.com. Today, Neil Kinsey's discussion examines the findings of seven soil samples from various geographic regions, soil types, and crop rotations. He tells us how to best interpret the sample results so that you can balance nutrients and achieve maximum yields with the properly applied inputs. Let's join Neil as he looks into what we can learn from these soil samples. There are exceptions, but most farmers, growers, and fertilizer companies don't really put a lot of stock in soil tests. When you really get down to it, I put on a lot of training programs for fertilizer companies and the field men, once you get to know them, say, I never knew how to read a soil test. I just wanted to know what the farmer wanted to make. We put that on when we sent it to the soil lab, then they send back, this is what you need. And we go back and we tell the farmer, this is what you need. So some say a soil test is just to point you in the right direction. Well, I don't think that's good enough. You don't want to be pointed in the right direction. You want to know what to do. And if you get a good soil test, get a soil test that's done right, you ought to be able to take a soil test and, and take a sample out of your worst and a sample out of your best and show it to somebody and say, which one's which? If they can't tell that, what good the soil test? That's one way to test your soil tester. That's what we tell people to do for us. There's one necessary fact about understanding a soil test the sample must be taken in such a way that it truly represents the area in question. If you don't take the sample right, the answer you get is going to be wrong. And I'll have people say, well, we got all kinds of mixed up soils in our field. Well, then what you do is look at how many areas are large enough to fertilize separately. If it's big enough for you to fertilize separately, take a separate sample there or stay out of it. If you're only going to take one sample, look and see what the most of the soil in that field is and sample that. Probably be better off to treat everything else that way, although the rest of it's not going to get exactly what it needs. 
How important is it to get exactly what it needs? That's what makes the difference in terms of telling you what you need to do and what you don't need to do. Fertilizer bill is like a car. You can get one to get you around, or you could buy one of those real fancy sports cars that cost a whole lot of money. It's, it it's maybe looks nice and great, but both of them get you around. Now, what am I saying about fertilizer program? You can spend a bunch of money on fertility. But what you want to do is put the money where it makes the most difference. And until you have a soil test that will give you that kind of guidance, how do you know what to do? We have a client in uh, Europe that sends us hundreds of samples a week. And he says, look, every one of those, I don't just want to know what fertilizer to put on. I want you to tell me for that crop and that soil, what's the number one thing we need to spend, we need to buy with our fertilizer budget. And then what's number two and what's number three and what's number four until we get down to everything you say we need on there because we're not going to be able to do it all. But if we do what's most important first, that's going to be the best thing for the crop. As long as you trust the soil test and who's telling you what to do with it. And you've got to learn that by trial and error, sort of like Johnny was saying up here about cover crops and so forth. You may have a person you work with and like very well. It's just a matter that sometimes you've got to practice in terms of putting that prioritization. This first soil we're going to look at here, uh, in terms of this first sample, it's a soil from Iowa, and I'm going to spread this out and bring it up to the top. The, the exchange capacity of this soil is 22.24, about the fourth line down. This is a wheat and uh, bean and corn, wheat, beans and corn uh, soil. Uh, the exchange capacity of 22.24 indicates a heavy clay soil, relatively heavy clay soil. The calcium magnesium levels, which we judge by going down to the bottom, and you'll see a 62.98% calcium, 14.52% magnesium. That's uh, within range, but it's not optimal for top yields. Still, spend the budget on the primary elements first. Calcium, magnesium are secondary elements. If you need nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium, and as we'll talk tomorrow in the roundtable discussion or in the discussion we have, not the, the, in the morning about sulfur, sulfur ought to be put right up there with phosphorus, and potassium, and nitrogen. It hasn't been, but it should be. So spend your money on NPK and S, and then any, any trace element deficiencies before you go back to line because at least they're within the range. Calcium should be 60 to 70 percent, magnesium 10 to 20 percent, and they're in that range. The pH on this test is a water pH, and if we go back up to the top and see our pH is 6. Well, a pH of 6, many people look at that and say, we don't need to be doing anything about, uh, about our uh, uh, line because we got a good pH already. It's a 6. Well, that's Remember, there are different ways to run pHs. We run a water pH, but most universities in the Midwest run a salt pH. That runs about a half point lower. So if you sent this to a university, don't be surprised if it said your pH was five and a half. If we put that into the picture, then some people might start to say, well, yeah, line becomes a little more important there. But be sure you know whether you have a salt pH or a water pH before you start evaluating some of the things to do on a soil test. For corn, 
We'd say supply a maintenance of 200 pounds of DAP or equivalent, at least a minimum of 150. 200 pounds of potassium chloride or 0060 would be ideal because potassium on this soil is likely the most limiting factor for corn, outside of nitrogen, of course. And then we also look, our sulfur level is one part per million. Absolute minimum for sulfur should be 20, but not for a good corn crop. If you're wanting to make 200 bushel corn, you need about 80 pounds, 70 to 80 pounds of actual sulfur from somewhere, or sulfur is gonna be a limiting factor, if not the limiting factor in your yield, and you can do an ear leaf at tassel and see whether it is or not. Sulfur at 80 pounds, in this case, we'd recommend 80 pounds of sulfur per acre, because we got two, one part per million, part per million times two is pounds per acre. So we got two pounds of sulfur there, maybe. At least the number of one generally always will get put there because somebody assumes there's something. But there are, there are soils where you basically you just say that's nothing. Well, just so happens 250 pounds of ammonium sulfate adds 60 pounds of sulfate sulfur and then another 20 pounds of elemental sulfur and you've got your sulfur to grow that crop. Then two pounds of boron broadcast along with your P and K or your nitrogen and then 1,500 to 2,000 pounds of high calcium lime, depending on, when we say 1,500 to 2,000, depends on your calcium content and your fineness of grind. Run a test to find out what that is. Then apply 20 pounds per acre of 23% copper sulfate. Boron's most limiting for corn. Copper sulfate is really not gonna make that much difference for you in the first year. But that's what it's gonna take to correct the copper. Get down to the bottom where we're talking about here. You can see boron is 0.79. If you don't keep that boron above 0.8, it's not gonna fill the kernels out to the top of the cob on the ear. You'll have, you'll have kernels that won't fill out, and some people tell you, oh, it's, it's been too hot, or it's been too cold, or it's been something. But if you don't keep that boron above 0.8, you're gonna have some kernels at the top of that cob not gonna fill in properly. When you start looking at, at uh, a, a corn, a, a, an ear of corn, and you say, some people say, oh, we don't have enough phosphate because it didn't fill out to the end. If you've got good straight rows, if the rows of corn are good and straight and so forth and it doesn't fill out to the end, look at where your phosphate level is. And if your soil test says you've got enough phosphate, that's not phosphate. Those good straight rows indicate that. It's likely boron. And if you're below 0.8, and that applied to just about everybody's test. A lot of these micronutrient tests will vary quite a lot from one to another, but most people do boron tests just about the same way. So if you've got less than 0.8, put enough boron on there to, to keep you above 0.8, and that will take about two pounds of actual boron. Then it'll fill out to the, it'll help fill that uh, grain out to the very end of the cob. I've had clients take me out in the field, pull the chuck down, and show you. They said, look at this, and there's a kernel standing right on the tip of the cob. When you get that, you got enough phosphorus and enough boron. And if you don't have enough phosphorus, the boron won't work. So you got to get that phosphate there first. But in terms of copper, apply 20, it's going to take 20 pounds of 23% copper sulfate to get that copper from 0.89 just above two parts per million. Two parts per million copper is necessary for several things. Number one, until you get that copper, this is remember wheat, beans, and corn. Till you get that copper above two, you're gonna have more problem with rust in your wheat. When you get that copper above two parts per million, copper and boron do two things for disease, rust and fungus diseases. 
Now, boron at just keeping that above 0.8 is not going to really be a disease fighter. You got to get that boron up to the ideal. You want boron really, ideally, same place for corn as where you want it for alfalfa, 1.5 to 2 parts per million. It's not going to get there in a year or two, and if you have good heavy soil like this, you can build it up. If you've got light sand, you may never get there. But if you want the best disease fighters in terms of rust and fungus diseases, get your boron above 1.5 and your copper above 2. That's the start. That was an Iowa soil. This is a, a soil from Missouri. It's a soybean soil, heavy clay soil with a 23 exchange capacity. Uh, it's in southeast Missouri. It needs potassium and phosphorus and sulfur. This type of soil can produce 80 bushel soybeans easily when provided the right nutrients, including sufficient nitrogen. But with the PK and S, likely only about 60 bushel soybeans until the farmer will disregard the pH, which is 6.3, and supply the calcium needed for high yield soybeans. To produce top yields, this needs one and a half, even though it's got a pH of 6.3. Don't look at your pH to tell if you need calcium or not. Dr. William Albrecht at University of Missouri always said that's one of the biggest mistakes farmers make because pH is not determined by calcium. pH is determined by calcium, magnesium, potassium, and sodium. And if you've got too much of magnesium or potassium and sodium, any one of those or all three of them, your pH is going to be too high even though you, have, you may not have enough calcium. In this case, that's what's happened. The pH is 6.3, not because of the calcium, but because we got 23% magnesium there. Magnesium influences pH 1.6 to 1. In other words, you take this much calcium, take the same amount of magnesium, and the calcium, that calcium, if that's enough to raise the pH from 5 to 6, that's enough magnesium to raise the pH from 5 to 6.6. .6. Magnesium influences pH that much more. Potassium, 2 to 1. Sodium, 4 to 1. Doesn't take a lot of sodium before it really skews the pH. Don't look at pH to tell if you need to lime. Look at your percentages of calcium. The calcium there needs to be absolute minimum of 60, and it's 57.74 on soybeans, on alfalfa, on any type of legumes. It's the big limiting factor besides potassium. Potassium and, and calcium are the big, biggest limiting, fa limiting factors for legumes in this case. But to produce top yield, this soil needs a ton and a half per acre of high calcium, low magnesium lime. Also, we need to build the boron above one and a half parts per million and build the copper up above two. Let's go up down to the traces. The copper's already at 2.9. So we got good copper here, but the boron's at 1.13. If we'll get the boron up, that's gonna be the key to fighting rust and fungus diseases, including Brazilian soybean rust and sudden death syndrome, both. If you want to see the difference, first of all, make sure your copper is up. And then secondly, work on that boron. That's all we'll say about that one because we need to get on through here. The third sample is also from Missouri, southeast Missouri. Only thing is, this is a, well, what many people would call a sandy soil. It's a light sandy loam soil, actually. Uh, some would just call it sand. Has a good pH, 6.2. Uh, low humus, though, 2.1. Any, any uh, humus content below 2.5, the soil microbiologist says the microbes are on a starvation diet. We see a lot of those type soils. 
less than two and a half percent humus, but it's good, much better than a lot of the light soils and even some of the heavy soils that are put to grade in southeast Missouri. For corn and wheat, that's what we'll look at on this corn, wheat, and beans on this soil. Nitrogen, phosphorus, and sulfur are all limiting factors. Uh, the phosphorus here shows the need 238. That's absolute minimum. If you want a low yield, 238 is what you're looking at. It doesn't mean 238 is going to be enough to make 200 bushel corn. Even at that 264, phosphorus is still going to be a likely limiting factor for high yield. But when we start looking at what's going to make the most difference for this soil, well, first of all, let's go down and look at the potassium. Potassium is 6.95%. Anything above 5% on a, on a heavy soil is great. It, by the time you get close to 7% on a, on a sandy soil like this, we've got good potassium levels. And we'd say potassium is not going to be your limiting factor here. For corn, nitrogen would be first, then phosphorus, then sulfur. Same for wheat. For soybeans, well, actually the first limiting factor would be lime and then phosphorus and sulfur. And depending on the desired yield, if we're looking at soybeans, nitrogen would be a limit, would be limiting yield here as well once we get the calcium levels where it needs to be. Now, when we say nitrogen would be limiting on yield, calcium is first, and how much is it gonna take on this light sand? There's a lot of people who say, oh, if you don't need two tons of lime, no sense of putting it on. Don't let, if you got sandy soil, don't let anybody fool you. That's way too much. Because the more calcium you put on you don't need, calcium has a tie-up effect on every other nutrient on that, on that uh, soil test except one, and that's phosphorus. And it won't tie up phosphorus until you get to pH above 8.4. So hopefully you don't have to face that. But it will start having an effect on available potassium, available boron, iron, manganese, copper, zinc, anything that's barely enough, it's not gonna be barely enough if you put on more limestone than you need. Now there'll be people who'll disagree and say you can't put on too much lime. I guarantee you, you can put on too much lime. The day you put on enough lime to tie up one of those other nutrients that's limiting, you just hurt yourself, you didn't help yourself if that's what happens. In this case, this soil has terrific micronutrient levels, a lot better than most that we'd see, especially sandy soils. And what, the, what I'd tell you is most limiting here, and we're not gonna have an adverse effect on the micronutrients at all, as long as we put it on properly, and that is uh, we'll need uh, about 1,500 pounds, three quarters of a ton per acre of a good high calcium limestone. That's enough to get that calcium to 68%, which is ideal for corn, wheat, or soybeans. 68% calcium on this light soil is still ideal for any one of those crops. But it's when you put that 1,500 pounds of calcium on, about three years down the road, it's likely to cause a magnesium deficiency. Because it takes three years, that calcium line will break down a third, a third, and a third. The first two years, you'll likely get by fine. But that third year, you're likely gonna create a a magnesium deficiency, it'll drive it down below 10%. You can check it after the second and third year just to be sure, but it's likely to cause a magnesium deficiency in that soil the third year for sure, maybe even the second year. And it will require about 250 pounds per acre of sulfamag or KMAG by the time we get to the end of that third year in order to keep that magnesium where it needs to be. To keep it up, and what do we need magnesium for? Magnesium is the center of the chlorophyll and the nitrogen attaches around it. Magnesium is the key 
to nitrogen utilization. And right now on this farm, if you're growing corn, the magnesium is still the key to nitrogen utilization, except when you have less than 10% magnesium in the soil, that soil is deficient in magnesium, it'll show up as a deficiency in your corn plant. It'll show up as a deficiency in, in beans or whatever. But when you go above 12% magnesium, that's too much magnesium, and that magnesium in that soil begins to tighten the soil because magnesium actually disperses the clay particles in the soil, spreads them out. And when it spreads out those clay particles, it reduces the pore space, it tightens that soil, and you have less air. When you have less air, all of a sudden the microbes can't do the job they're supposed to do, and all of a sudden you get an adverse effect on your nitrogen utilization. High magnesium in the soil means you don't get enough you don't get the, uh, as much response from your nitrogen because magnesium is antagonistic to nitrogen. But also anything above 12% magnesium, that soil begins to tighten up enough so that some, something in that soil happens, and I think it has to do with the soil life, but I've never seen anything that says it. But something happens so that even though you have an excess of magnesium in the soil, the plants won't get enough. Corn, soybeans, or wheat will show a magnesium deficiency when the soil shows it has too much. What I'm saying here is if you plant corn or wheat or even soybeans on this soil this first year, even though you put limestone on it, it's not gonna control that magnesium fast enough and you're gonna have, a, because the magnesium's too high, there's gonna be a magnesium deficiency in the crop and you need to spray foliar magnesium and you'll probably have to do it three or four times or else you won't get a response. You do it once and it'll green up the crop. You'll say, oh boy, we, we did our job. One time not going to be enough to make a difference in terms of yield. It's going to take three or four times. But once you get that magnesium down below 12, you won't have that problem. So foliar magnesium is likely needed on this crop. It doesn't take a lot of foliar magnesium. About five and a half pounds of magnesium sulfate, five to five and a half pounds of magnesium sulfate per acre. Three or four times. But you know, you can grow a crop without it. It's just a matter of saying, well, if we want to look and see what do we do to improve things, and magnesium is already a, a factor right now, and it's going to be more of a factor. With the lime and adequate nitrogen, phosphorus, and sulfur, and sufficient magnesium for that second and third year, and enough boron to get us up to 1.5 parts per million, how much is that? We're at 1.15. How much does it take to get to 1.5? For every pound of boron you apply, it will raise your boron level by 0.1 part per million, at best, at best. So it means if we're gonna to get to one and a half, we need three and a half pounds of boron applied on there. You don't wanna do that all at once. Oh, if your calcium was in good shape, I've seen people do it and it works fine. I knew one fellow and he'd put on four pounds of boron on his corn every year. Four pounds of actual boron, but he was real careful not to overlap because that means he got eight. He'd spread it dry, put it on every year. As long as he didn't get an overlap, everything worked great. If he got an overlap and you got three cool, damp days in a row, first day it turned yellow, second day it turned white, and the third day you hope it just stays white. <laughs> if it stays white that third day and gets through the third day, it's gonna be all right. Otherwise, if it sloughs off, it's gone because it's not coming back. Now have good calcium level, get that calcium up into that 68% range. The lower your percentage of calcium, the harder boron is on the crop you're growing. 
So it's not a good idea to come in here and put that boy on until you put limestone on this soil. At, le at least in that kind of a, an amount. We'll rejoin Neil in a moment, but I wanted to take time once again to thank our sponsor, Yetter Manufacturing Company, for supporting our No-Till Farmer podcast series. With a tradition of providing farmers solutions since 1930, Yetter Manufacturing Company is your answer for tools and equipment to face today's production agriculture demands. From many different designs of planter attachments for the different planting conditions you face, to several options of equipment for placing fertilizer and products to meet harvest time challenges, Yetter Manufacturing delivers the return on investment and tools to meet your equipment needs and maximize inputs. Find solutions to your challenges today at yetterco.com. That's Y-E-T-T-E-R-C-O.com. We've heard from Neil about the first three soil types and, among other things, the importance of micronutrients in preventing certain diseases, as well as the importance of lime to correct calcium deficiencies, and how magnesium is the key to nitrogen utilization. So let's get back to him as he talks about four more soil samples, including one that shows signs of imbalance from excessive manure on a sandy loam soil. This is an Illinois soil, Southern Illinois. It's a corn and soybean soil. Uh, look at the exchange, 9.96. Again, that's a, well, a sandy loam soil we generally think. No, no, not in this case. It's a gray crawfish to a rusty yellow color clay soil. Doesn't hold much more than sand because it's a coarse clay. Coarse clay, and sandy soil, work, you have to work them a lot alike. It depends on how much clay is in that soil, and this one doesn't have much more clay than a sandy loam soil. N much more colloidal clay. That's when you take the clay particles in the soil and break them down to the point you can't break them down any smaller. That's the only part of the clay, that's the only part of a soil that actually attracts and holds nutrients, is that very smallest clay particle we call the clay colloid. Well, this doesn't have very many clay colloids according to what you'd look at that soil and think would be there. The yellow clays uh, that you look at in the Ozarks of Missouri don't have any better uh, exchange capacity than the sandbars in the Mississippi River because the clay is so coarse, it's so big, it's not fine. It's been, all the fines have been eroded away. You have to treat it just like sand. So in this case, we'll treat this like a sandy loam soil. That's what it should be treated like, even though it's a, it's a sort of a crawfish clay type soil. Uh, it's not a typical Illinois soil, although it's a typical crawfish type of a, of a soil. Has a good pH, but it's a poor producer. Doesn't produce good crops. At least whenever we started working with the soil and, and seeing it as it is right here, it doesn't produce good crops because the phosphorus is deficient, the potassium looks good, but it can be a factor depending on what kind of yield you're trying to make. And at the same time, the sulfur is at 21. Phosphorus, potassium, and sulfur aren't bad, but they're just borderline. So you could say, well, you know, this soil, you know, people will say, well, 
You got enough fertility, you don't, you don't, you can, you can go a long time without putting fertilizer on and still grow crop. If you've got really good fertility, yes, you can. But if you've got a soil like this, you can't go very long before it's going to be the, the PK and S is going to be a factor limiting. What you do is measure and be sure you got enough. I've had clients who haven't put on any P and K for 10 years and still have enough. And they didn't grow cover crops. One client, 10 years, growing sugar beets every other year. And he said, every year I grow sugar beet, we get a higher tonnage and a higher sugar, and everybody says you can't do that. Without any P or K. Because the soil had enough. It had too much, actually. And if you start having too much, you actually create other problems, and as you bring that level down, it'll help it rather than hurt it. In this case, it's not the... It's not the Phosphorus, potassium, and sulfur, that's the real problem. It's too little calcium and too much magnesium. We don't have enough calcium and we have too much magnesium. 56% calcium. Now, when you look at the pH, it's 6-1. But remember, that's a water pH. It'd be about a 5-6 on a salt pH. Some people would still say you don't need to lime that. But when you fully correct the calcium within three, when you, if you put the calcium that's required on here, within three years of time, of, of, the first, of the time of application, if you use a high calcium carbonate lime, the magnesium will be deficient. Not just lacking a little, it will be deficient in this soil. You'll cause, by putting on just calcium lime, you'll cause a magnesium deficiency here. And you can sit down and figure it out. It's going to require about 50 pounds of magnesium to offset the amount of limestone that's required on this soil. So when we start looking at uh, what to do, we'd actually come in and correct the calcium and then count on that we're going to have to put about 250 pounds of K-mag or sopomag or magnesium sulfate, which is a lot higher, on there about the second and third year down the road. It only takes 1,200 pounds of dolomite limestone, though, to apply this. If you can get a good dolomite, a good fine grind dolomite, 1,200 pounds of dolomite will supply the amount of magnesium that's required, but it won't supply enough calcium. If you put on more than that, it's going to put too much magnesium on. So we put on the right amount to supply the magnesium and then use about 300 pounds per year of pelletized calcium carbonate. And then, yes, I know pelletized lime costs more than limestone. But if you can spread 600 pounds calcium carbonate lime, and we have variable rate spreaders that can do it now. If you can do that, that'll work fine. If you can't, it's better to put on the pelletized lime. And I tell my clients, count pelletized lime like a fertilizer, not like a limestone. If we started to look at what it, because people say, well, you know, you get limestone, it doesn't cost very much. It just comes out of the mine. That, that pelletized lime, it's really high. Based on the cost of what it costs to mine phosphate and potassium, if we could get that straight from the mine, pelletized lime's a real good bargain. It's a matter of whether you need it or not. And remember, you prioritize. You say, all right, this makes the most difference. This is next, this is next, this is next. But if you use what you need most, and it's not nitrogen, sulfur, and boron, because those you're going to basically have to keep on supplying. But once you get past those, if you use what we call soil feeders rather than plant feeders and build those levels up, eventually you're going to get to where some of these things are not the limiting factor anymore. Now you can keep going down the list further and finally you get to the bottom of the list. 
only spend what your fertilizer budget, only what, spend what you would spend on your fertilizer budget anyway. Okay, let's go on to the next soil. This is a soil from Pennsylvania. This soil is about the same, uh, you know, exchange capacity as the one we just looked at, but this is a nice sandy, well, a nice loamy soil. You, some people wouldn't call this a sandy loam, but it's a, a mid-Pennsylvania soil. And it's gotten a lot of manure. And look at where the phosphate levels are. That's one reason you can say it's gotten a lot of manure because minimum phosphate desired is 238. There's 1,134 pounds of phosphate there. Do you believe that or do you say, oh, that must be wrong? What we'll tell people that have that kind of a phosphate level, don't put on phosphate. Just be sure you put on everything that makes that phosphate be able to be utilized. Now, the calcium levels at the bottom is 68.26, which we'd say is ideal. Magnesium is high, 16.39. It's costing you at least 10 bushels of soybean to the acre just to have that magnesium where it is. How much does it cost to get rid of it? Will that 10 bushels of soybean pay for it? That's the question. But there's another problem here. The potassium value found is, the desired value is 313. The value found is 645. That puts our potassium at 8.4%. Anytime potassium goes above 7.5%, start tying up boron. And it will do it every time. You, once your potassium goes too high, now all of a sudden you create a new problem. Every time you get too much of something on, you're going to have too little of something else. Every time. You don't get away with putting on too much of something and everything else just stays great. Every time you put one thing on, if it goes up, something else has to go down. The question is, can we have that go down and still work out? In this case, what I'm going to tell you is, we got 68% calcium, but the most economical way to control that potassium and magnesium is to increase the calcium to 72%. Because the trace elements are so good other than boron, which we're going to have to add anyway, the trace elements are good enough that we can do that and still not cause a problem. This is a nice sandy loam soil, but it doesn't yield well because of too much, using too much manure in the past. Excessive PK and magnesium, ideal calcium, deficient sulfur, low boron, and possibly deficient iron. Possibly. When we say possibly deficient, iron is one of those things that can be deficient in the topsoil and still have enough in the subsoil. If you can get those roots down into that subsoil and the iron is higher than the manganese in the subsoil, you don't have to worry about putting iron on top. You either have to run a test of the subsoil or else run some tests to see if applying the iron works or not. Iron is probably one of the most uh, fickle of all the things we have to work with. Thankfully, most of the time, it isn't a problem. But in this case, and in some of the soils up in that area, yes, it can be. If the subsoil has plenty, we don't worry about it. But So that's why we say possibly deficient iron. Excess phosphorus is antagonistic to sulfur uptake as well as zinc uptake. So we've got an extremely high phosphorus and low sulfur. And incidentally, excess sulfur is antagonistic to phosphate uptake as well. So when you have extreme amounts of sulfur, not enough phosphorus like we see in some of the western states, We'll get the opposite happening, but normally in terms of areas where there's manure, we have this kind of problem. Uh, the, the answer here as far as, uh, well, I didn't tell you about when your phosphate is that high, it actually ties up zinc. Zinc's necessary for moisture absorption. That means it takes more water to do this, to grow the same crop. You get that phosphate down or get your zinc level, as long as you can get the zinc in the plant, it works fine.
K is even worse here in terms of, uh, of the problem in terms of excess. Ties up the boron, and just by adding another 50 pounds of potassium from 0050, 0060, manure, compost, just by adding another 50 pounds of potassium, you'll push that, that potassium and sodium above 10% when you combine them, and that starts blocking the manganese out of your crop. Manganese is necessary for seed germination, to grow, for the plant to grow off quickly, for size, for bloom set, and for fruit set. You can, you can actually, just putting on another 50 pounds of, of potassium here, in other words, somebody says, well, I got manure and it's free, so I'm gonna put it on. You're gonna pay the price. That manure is not free. The first order of business here is to stop adding P and K and reduce both, if possible. We also will improve this soil by reducing the magnesium down to between 10 and 12%. You can reduce the potassium and magnesium by applying sulfur, but even faster with sulfur and as much calcium as possible. To get to 72% calcium, we can apply 147 pounds of calcium. Now you can sit down, all this stuff can be done by formulas. We teach every formula that we use in determining what should be done on every test. We teach that and we teach it all in arithmetic, not mathematics. Add, subtract, multiply, and divide. If you can add, subtract, multiply, and divide, you can figure out what to do on a soil test. All you need to know is what number do I plug into the formula? And the numbers are all given on the test. That's how accurate a soil test should be. You ought to be able to plug in the numbers and say, okay, this is what's gonna happen. Now, you know, you're gonna have a little bit of variation simply because sometimes you don't get it exactly spread. You get a little less or a little more, sometimes a lot less or a lot more, depending on mistakes or whatever. But you can reduce potassium and magnesium here by increasing the calcium and increasing the sulfur. That means gypsum is a good candidate for using on this soil. Gypsum will work really here, really well here, about 750 pounds per acre will increase the calcium to 72% and reduce the potassium below 7.5%, which means now it's not gonna have an effect on your boron. And gypsum, the calcium and sulfur and gypsum all works in 12 months. So you get, if you can get it on in the fall of the year before your crop in the spring, you've got a good chance of solving your problem. It's just a matter of doing it. Test again after 12 months to see how much more sulfur will be needed because we've already done all we can do with calcium at that time. We want to get that magnesium down below 12. You'll need to keep boron at least above 0.8 parts per million, which right now it's at 0.69, so about two pounds of actual boron, that'll be enough to keep us above that we'll actually say two pounds of actual boron, and then if you're set up to do it, use either a foliar boron or put about uh, 10 pounds of 14.3% borate in with your nitrogen if you've got a crop like wheat or corn that you're gonna broadcast, spread it right over the top, won't hurt at all. Sulfur will acidulate iron, so when we're using sulfur here, it's also going to help to make more iron available. But again, if you've got enough iron in the sub subsoil, you don't have to worry about that. This is an Indiana soil has an exchange capacity just like the very high-priced Corn Belt soils of Iowa, Illinois. That exchange capacity is right, right in there. It's uh, 15, 14, 15, 16, up to 18. pH is 6.8. When you see a pH above 6.5, you can say, we got too much of something. Just a question of what is it. That pH wouldn't be 6.8 if you didn't have too much of something. Look at the humus content. That's the difference between this soil in Indiana and a Corn Belt soil. 
Those corn belt soil generally have four or five percent humus. This one has 1.9. So humus is extremely short in terms of this. And I, I will say this, a soil that has 1.9% humus, when you start switching off to, to using no-till or to using cover crops or keeping that soil covered all the time, you just watch how fast that number goes up. And I mean, I've seen this on farm after farm after farm, and the fellows right beside who, who will, well, even the opposite, had a group of farmers and they had quite a bit of pasture, but it was flat land. When the corn and bean prices went up, they took a lot of land out of pasture and put it into corn and soybeans. They went from 4% humus to 2.5% humus in two years. That quick. If you don't keep that land covered. And they just went, switched to conventional and went right at it. It can change that fast. This is a corn and soybean soil, a clay loam soil, good TEC. High pH due to calcium and magnesium level, both. The calcium is at 70%, ideal 68. On soils like this, ideal we'd say 68 calcium, 12% magnesium, or 80% total. If you, the higher that number between those two goes above 80%, the, hard, the, the harder your soil is gonna become, or the tighter your soil is gonna become, whatever you wanna say, or the stickier your soil is gonna become. Nitrogen, potassium, and sulfur will be most needed here, plus foliar magnesium for nitrogen utilization. Good phosphorus, but use a starter if you're planting corn in cool, damp soils, or even if the soils are nice, but you have a chance of getting three cool, damp days in a row as the crop begins to grow off, even though they've got good phosphate levels here, a starter phosphate is a good insurance program. Traces are good, but use two pounds of boron to keep the boron above that 0.8 parts per million. It's just barely above it right now, 0.84. If that's gonna be soybeans, you wouldn't have to put any boron on. There'll be enough boron there to grow your soybean crop because soybeans only need 0.65 parts per million boron in order to fill those beans in the pod. Calcium puts the starch in the leaf. Boron takes the starch out of the leaf and puts it in the seed or the fruit. And if you want big soybeans, you got to have enough boron to get the starch out of the leaf and into that bean. If you ever get a situation where you get a lot of rain and down in our area we'll have a lot of dry land beans or behind wheat or whatever and the farmers will say, oh, we need the rain. They start getting rain, oh boy, we're gonna make good beans. But then you'll have areas where you get spotty rains and some will get a whole, a whole lot and others won't get so much. And guess what? The guys who make a whole lot think they're gonna make the best beans and they'll have BBs where the guy who just got average rains has bigger beans. Because if you get so much rain and you don't put boron, and you don't put enough boron on to stay above that 0.65 parts per million, when the water leaches it out of the root zone, plants can't get it then, and they can't use it to take that starch out of the leaf and put it into the grain. If you got good plump soybeans that fill that pot out really good, you got enough calcium and you got enough boron. If you're, you know, if you're getting all the pods that you need there and fill them out properly. But traces are good, except we want to keep the boron above 0.8. Still, 1.5 to 2 is best because of the ability to fight diseases. That holds true in all kinds of plants. It isn't just cropping plants, it's every plant. Again, ammonium sulfate is an excellent source of nitrogen on corn here. We can apply that planting, and 60 days after you put this ammonium sulfate on corn or cotton, if you put it on the day you plant, 60 days later on a warm soil is when you're going to get your push from conversion to nitrate. Not that everything is going to convert there, but that 60 days is when you'll get your big push exactly when you need it. 
That's one of the reasons we try to get people to put ammonium sulfate on at planting time. As close to planting time as possible to the point we've got farmers that'll pull a, a spreader buggy over when they plant corn, the day they plant their corn, just to make sure they get the ammonium sulfate on there. Because if you get rain, 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 and you can't get out there, ammonium sulfate in the ammonia form stays as nitrogen for about, you've got a good safe source that's gonna stay in that soil for about 60 days, even though that soil warms up. Now, as Dr. Albrecht used to say, as long as you got a small plant that's growing slow, a corn plant or a bean plant or a wheat plant or whatever can take ammonia up into the plant and convert it to nitrate fast enough, as long as it's little and just growing slow. But when you get that real quick spurt of growth and start to really grow off, now I can't convert it fast enough. That's when you need that nitrate push. And on corn and cotton, that's about 60 days after it's applied. We use ammonium sulfate. We actually recommend ammonium sulfate on rice as well and get that on there at planting time because it's a good safe source of nitrogen even though it's standing in water. It's a good safe source of nitrogen because it's in the ammonia form and it will, it will work out in terms of uh, before that first watering. We like to get that on right at planting time if possible or just before planting, if, depending on how you're gonna seed it to where the water is. We'll need about 350 pounds of sulfur to remove the excess magnesium in this soil over a three-year period. It can be done. People tell you you can't do it. Yes, it can. 350 pounds of extra sulfur over and above what the crop takes will take out all that extra magnesium in this soil and it'll do it within three years time. As long as you don't have a hard pan and what tells you if you have a hard pan, if your boron, sulfur, and sodium show high accumulations in the soil, that says you don't have enough water movement, you're not gonna move that magnesium out. But if those levels don't show excess, and they don't here, what it says is that this soil is open enough that you can move that magnesium out. Now, it's gonna take 350 pounds on corn, soybeans, and wheat based on increased yield potential and savings on foliar magnesium and reduced nitrogen requirements. At times, the yield the, the yield plus those savings make it worthwhile, but at times it's not worth spending the money over a three-year period because you won't get your money back. Then you spread that sulfur out over a longer period. It's going to take longer, but you can do it. I had one farmer, it took 15 years to get all the magnesium out of his soil because he put on so much dolomitic limestone because he always thought all that matters is pH. And every time he needed a higher pH, he put on more dolomite. Magnesium kept going up, calcium kept going down. Let's go to that last soil. I say this one, to, to last, it's one of the most interesting soils of the ones we talk about. Notice this soil, the calcium's 83.99% and the magnesium's 10.41. Now, if you start looking at most soils, they'll tell you, oh, 68% calcium, 12% magnesium is ideal. This soil will produce just as much as any 68-12 soil. This is an Iowa soil, heavy clay soil, has the potential of producing 90 bushel soybeans and easy without doing much anything, 60 bushel soybeans. But what happens in terms of soils like this, you, there's one limiting factor that you gotta take care of if you're growing soybeans here, and that's at 1.38% potassium. Even though we've got enough potassium, when you look at pounds, 406 pounds, this is the kind of soils I grew up on and we've got 406 pounds of potassium, it doesn't take that much to grow 60 bushel soybeans, but the potassium is below 2%.
And if you're below 2% potassium, put enough potassium on there to at least give a maintenance level of potassium because when you're below 2%, the other nutrients will crowd out the potassium and you won't get enough in there. So in that kind of a case, don't look at how many pounds you've got. Look at, first of all, try to get it above 2%. If it won't get to 2%, then at least put on the amount of potassium it takes to grow that crop, a maintenance level of about 90 to 100 pounds of actual K. If you do that, this soil will grow terrific soybeans, getting that potassium up, uh, and the sulfur will also, it takes about, uh, well, for, uh, it takes about, 30 pounds of sulfur for 60 bushel beans and about uh, uh, around 45 or so, I don't know exactly out of my head, for 80 bushel soybeans. So we need to get our sulfur levels up. But you get the sulfur and the potassium up, it'll grow great beans. Potassium's first. Sulfur will make the difference next. But this soil won't grow good barley, won't grow good beets, and won't grow good brassicas even though it'll raise really great soybeans. And the reason is, look at how low the sodium level is, 0.13. If you don't have at least a half percent sodium, barley, beets, and brassicas don't do well. And if you're trying to put those in your cover crops and you're less than a half percent sodium, consider doing something to get your sodium levels up. Because they'll do better once you do it. Thanks again to Neil Kinsey. Using real-world soil reports from his lab, he's explained several nutrient imbalances and what steps can be taken to resolve excesses or deficiencies, whether it's in heavy clays, sandy loams, or something in between. For those listeners who would like to hear more podcasts about plant and soil health and successful strategies for no-tilling, please visit notillfarmer.com forward slash podcasts. Again, we'd like to recognize and thank our sponsor, Yetter Manufacturing Company, for helping to make this No-Till Farmer podcast series possible. If you have any feedback on today's episode, feel free to drop me an email at mmcneely at lessetermedia.com, M-M-C-N-E-E-L-Y at lessetermedia.com, or give me a call at 262 777 2404. And if you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or the Google Play Store to get an alert when future episodes are released. You can also keep up on the latest no-tilling farming news by registering online for our No-Till Insider Daily and our weekly email updates and the Dryland No-Tiller e-newsletter. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at No-Till Farmer with Farmer spelled F-A-R-M-R and on our No-Till Farmer Facebook page. For Neil Kinsey, Yetter Manufacturing Company, and our entire staff here at No-Till Farmer, I'm Managing Editor Mark McNeely. Thank you for listening.